Well, guys, um, we've been talking about TGIM. Thank God it's Monday for quite a while, and you guys have been awesome in talking about that, and hopefully all of us getting a chance to change what happens on Monday morning wherever we show up. Been looking forward to this Sunday for a long time as we conclude this. We have a couple of guest speakers with us from Lipscomb University. One is Earl Lavender. Earl has um, been teaching at Lipscomb since 1991. Uh, taught a lot about Christian spirituality. Actually, he's been here to Landmark and shared with us a few years ago. Missional living is another one of the things he's really good at. Uh, Earl Lavender actually has been a part of planting churches in foreign fields, Italy, and Illinois. Just thought in the South, you might appreciate Illinois. All right, he's, he's been in both those places and done some great things. I think that set a pace for the kind of mission that he's on. And then we also have with us Rob Touchstone. Rob teaches at Lipscomb. He teaches multiple things, business, theology, and vocation. Uh, Rob has touched a lot of people. One time, years and years ago, I tried to hire Rob as our youth minister, and uh, he told me, no, um, don't get too impressed. I've offered it to lots of people. But, um, man, I, I love Rob Touchstone. I love how God uses him. And him and Earl have come together in this amazing team that you're going to witness today. In 2022, uh, they began the Center for Vocational Discovery that's helping students at Lipscomb University know how to integrate their vocation with their faith. And that's what they're here to do for us today. Here's one of the descriptions on one of their resumes. Our passion is helping students, businesses, and churches engage in the intersection of faith, purpose, and mission. That's where I'd like to be. How about you? So would you uh, join me in welcoming Earl Lavender and Rob Touchstone to Landmark this morning? Thank you, Rob. Good morning. Well, buddy, because I said no all those years ago, I couldn't say no again. So here we are. Thank you for having us. We're so excited to be with you today and to get to talk a little more about what I know Buddy's already developed really well, and that is this idea that we can live our faith as fully on Monday as we might think about what we do here on a Sunday. So we want to help think through that a little bit more with you today. So our theme for today is, is trying to help you to think about How can you discover your role in God's redemptive story? God is telling a story to the world through you, and a lot of that's going to happen best when you learn to be you, to embrace your God-given identity and your God-given talent, and you say yes to the cooperation and commission and participation that comes in our day-to-day lives, even on Mondays. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, especially today, if you want to tune in there, as we look at the redemptive story that is being, that we're being invited to by Christ. And so let's dig into Ephesians chapter 4. So one of my favorite texts in Scripture is Ephesians. I've got my favorite verse. My wife was kind enough to cross-stitch when we were first married, back when I was a PE major, planning on being a coach. But I still believed that to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or even think, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever, right? And so I've always believed that God could do more than we could ever imagine. So what Paul is doing in this letter, which by the way is probably a general letter to the churches in Asia Minor. Paul had worked in Ephesus for two and a half years 
but he doesn't name anybody by name, which makes me think that Paul is writing a circular letter to help the churches in Asia Minor and in Montgomery be who God has called them to be. And so we have this amazing text, we start in verse 11, where you have this victorious scene of Christ having defeated Satan and death itself, and he's leading them captive as he ascends into heaven in Paul's picture. Actually, Paul goes back to Psalm 68 and quotes this wonderful, probably it's of David and a victory where he comes into Jerusalem leading the captives. And in Psalm 68, he says, and he received gifts from men. That's what you did. When a king won a battle, you acknowledged your gratitude by giving him gifts. But Paul misquotes the Psalm because he's talking about Jesus. And this is the ultimate victor over all the things we've ever wanted to conquer. Death is is done with. Satan is defeated. And as Christ ascends, he gives to his church gifts. This king has won the greatest battle, and rather than receiving gifts, he gives gifts, and it's your leaders. And I don't know that he intended to point out specific leader uh, roles like prophets and apostles, and that's possible, but likely he's saying very clearly, these leaders have one purpose, and that is to equip you for the battle ahead. And it is, it's battle imagery, because the word used for equipping is a word that would be used that a page would prepare a knight for battle. He, he's dressing the, the warrior for battle. But this is a different kind of battle, isn't it? We're not going to overcome with violence. We're going to overcome with loving service and sacrifice. By taking that to which has been entrusted to us, and this word ministry is really interesting because I I wrote a book about this back back in the 1980s because I was working at planting churches in that faraway nation of Illinois, right? I guess that's what you meant, um, as I was doing my Ph.D. work. And we were really trying to, to bring people into this idea that they were called to be participants in the kingdom of God. And so I wrote a book, A Biblical Pattern for Church Growth. And there's a lot of early books that I wrote that I've, cop- I've tried to buy every copy of and burn them. But this one, I don't mind, except I had a narrow view of ministry at that point where I thought what ministry meant was serving God through the church. But I think the word is a much wider word, which means taking that which has been given to you, developing it, and then giving it to the world who needs it. And that's what we're trying to do at Lipscomb with this new Center for Vocational Discovery, which is just such a joy to work with Rob in this and others who are are passionately involved. And I think the wonder of this is we have a collaborative effort where all the faculty and all the deans and all the administration is talking about the opportunity that we have to shape lives by giving our students an understanding of identity, purpose, vocation, and location. And our dream is that we will commission them into the world. And we have our largest ever student uh, incoming freshman uh, group this year, uh, 700. And they're coming from all over the place. And they're not necessarily interested in church or even the Christian faith because of the various things that we offer. And they come because of what we're offering in preparation. It gives us four years to tell them that Jesus is Lord. And we want to do that much more intentionally because we believe that their true value can only be found in the narrative that we're studying together because what God intends is for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus is to bring his shalom back to creation. He intends to do this through the church by equipping all of us for the work that he gives us every day. 
It's so much fun to share with a student who is maybe feeling like they sold out by majoring in business or majoring in something that doesn't feel so spiritual to them. It's so fun to see them start to realize that what they're going to do is just as important as if they had majored in Bible and gone into preaching in a pulpit, or just as important as if they were going to go far away to a country, a developing world, and be a missionary. What we love showing them is that this work that you're going to go and do is going to, in the day-to-day 90,000 hours you're going to work in your career, going to be a carrier of God's mission, even on Monday. And I've almost quite literally seen students high-fiving each other in class when they realize, like, I didn't sell out by going into business. I get to do this in a way that honors God. And so one of the places that's fun to talk about with a student is let's not just think about Paul as a missionary or an author of Scripture. Who is this Paul who's writing this letter that we're looking at for a few minutes this morning? Paul, yes, was a missionary. Paul was a rabbi, but he was also a tent maker. Paul knew how to talk business in the marketplace. I love that when we read about Paul, yes, he goes into the synagogue and he preaches like a good rabbi would do, trying to convince the Jewish people in the areas of the world where he travels that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And then what does Paul do? He goes out to the lecture hall. He goes out to the marketplace. And he's showing a world what it looks like to embody Jesus. And he does that by knowing their language. You think Paul could talk about as a tent maker, supply chain? You think Paul could talk about investment and return on investment? Paul knew how to engage. This is the opportunity we have in our work to make an impact. Because sometimes it's very easy to see our spirituality as an otherworldly spirituality that really our role here is just to sort of be a good ethical person, to hang on until we die, and then one day be ushered into the kingdom of God. But this is a kingdom of God that's breaking in here and near and now. And so Paul loves to talk about our work. He's being in the marketplace a good worker in God's kingdom. And so he says, hey, and I love this is the message translation. Don't just do the minimum that will get you by. And it's easy to settle into that with a theology that says it's all going to burn anyway. What does it really matter? We're going to just earn our paycheck because it's a necessary thing we have to do in the world. Paul says, no, do your best. Work from the heart. So again, not just your hands, but with your, from your heart. Because your boss, your God is, God is your boss and he's who you're really working for. So keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. And I love again in this translation, Eugene, the way Eugene Peterson, Peterson translate this, The sullen servant who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up for bad work. And maybe this expands our horizon in the way we think about spirituality. Maybe the most spiritual thing that you'll do tomorrow is going to have to do with crunching numbers and loving your office neighbor or helping to settle a conflict. Dorothy Sayers, who was uh, an author and a theologian, who was engaged in the real world, literature world, and then, of course, in theology. She says this, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. Does this sound familiar? Not that this is what Buddy's preaching on Sunday, but 
oftentimes we just think about what not to do, like how to stay out of trouble and how to be, uh, maybe just get by with our work and stay out of trouble with the rest of our lives. What Sayers says is what the church should be telling the carpenter is that the very first demand that his religion places upon him is to make good tables. That's part of what it means to live out our kingdom calling and vocation. Being who we are is God's design in the talents he's given us, stewarding those for the world because we are his workmanship. He worked and crafted us so that we could go and work in the world and collaborate with him. And again, just to remind us, a lot of times we see a number like this and we think, oh, I've got to work for 90,000 hours in my career. And many of you are are well into those 90,000 hours, or maybe you've retired from those 90,000 hours. But our work is not a burden. Our work is a gift. Wouldn't it be sad and ashamed if somehow we traded all of that and we said, that's just a necessary evil to get by, but I'll still, I'll do the work of the church and service projects and mission work and going to church. What a waste of 90,000 hours of interactivity with real people day to day. And what the writer of Proverbs reminds us, and I love this, is that we're called to, to help bring forth shalom and flourishing in our world so that when it goes well with us in our work, when, when the righteous are doing their work well, when entrepreneurs are creating businesses in the name of Jesus, when nurses are loving and serving patients by having tremendous patience and kindness and care, what they're doing is blessing the city. When the believer does what God's called them to do, the city should rejoice because it's not being done for self or fulfillment of self, but for the blessing of the city. And so let's go back to what Paul is telling us in Ephesians, and that is this is the work of the church, the work of the church as the body of Christ engaged in the world around us. So the opportunity we have as leaders and coming together as a church in equipping, I, I wonder if it wouldn't be better almost to think of our leaders as coaches. That's, you know, my undergraduate degrees in PE because I could spell it. Uh, I, was, I was planning to be a coach. That's all I ever intended to be. I was born to missionary parents in Italy. And so I had been raised in Italy and that's the last place I wanted to go back to until I got the opportunity after graduating to help start a baseball program in Italy. And So I played on a semi-pro team and managed it for several years. And I found this text because here I was trying to plant a church with a PE degree, which is, well, never mind. I'm just saying. All I, I I didn't have an aspiration to be a a spiritual leader. I, I just, I wanted to start a group of people who knew Jesus. And I found this text and it talked about how to equip people for works of service. And so start with me in verse 12. So what, what, is, what is this equipping? And it's like coaching people into full participation for which they were created. The passage that Rob has already shared with us, Ephesians 2.10, that they are the handiwork of God, that they have been stitched together with this DNA that allows them to be able to give what they have received. So this is the narrative we tell our students. And many of our students now are not necessarily believers. Some of them are Muslim. Some of them are Hindus. So they're coming from all over the world. And what an opportunity to tell them this true story of faith, that they were created for a purpose. And we say, whether you believe this story or not, we believe it. So as professors, as administrators, what we want to do is to help you find the best version of yourself. 
Because we believe that you were stitched together with gifts and abilities that now what you need is equipping. You need to know how to become everything that God had in mind when he had a twinkle in his eye as he stitched together your DNA and gave you life. And we want to help you find that best version of yourself because that's going to contribute to the shalom of the world. And that's what the church is about, is equipping us for that to which God has called us, which is specific to each one of us. But here's the key. How do we become that which God has created us to be? You know, there's a lot of anxiety. And I know that Landmark is going against this uh, trend, and I'm thankful for that. But a lot of churches in the West are in precipitous decline. And so one of the things we'll be sharing with your leaders over the next couple of days is, the, is what we found in our research with students, just saying, what is it that would call you back to the church if you've left it? Or what is it that would really attract you to a church? And a, what a lot of them are saying is we want a place where not only are we, we belong, but we have something to contribute. And, and we want to be seen for who we are, right? So the answer is, how do we equip? And it's in verse 13. And I've often told my students, if I ever ask a question and you don't know the answer, say Jesus, you'll be right most of the time. Because I do think Jesus is the answer. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, the way that you are equipped, and by the way, the word ministry just means to be a gopher. You receive in order to give. A table waiter receives food from the kitchen to serve to the table. Um, And you have gifts that have been entrusted to you. They're not yours. God gave them to you. And whether you want to call them a spiritual gift or an ability, they're from God, right? So how do you prepare that for those who need it? And then you begin to see in this room all the gifts that are present for a hurting world. And you have an opportunity to be a part of that, to wake up every morning to use those gifts for God's purposes. How do you do that? Well, you grow into the image of Jesus. And that also resolves another issue. If you look in verse 14, there are those who want to take the value of your life and use it for things other than what God intends. It's called marketing. I mean, think about it. Advertisements, what do they tell you? Buy our product and you will find life. A happy meal. The only one that makes happy is Ronald, right? I mean, we, we, we sell emotion. We don't sell products because the idea is we have something that will give you life. Well, here's the narrative. The only thing that's going to give you life is for you to become like Jesus. And that's what's going to counter the marketing schemes. And it's not just marketing. I'm talking about the world in general. I think Satan works by taking God's best gifts in you and having you use them for things other than God's purposes. And we have to be careful of that. We're going to talk about that tonight. So really invite you to come back tonight, please, because we'd like to tell you stories and really clarify what we mean by giving your gifts to the purposes of God. It's not inherently religious. It is inherently giving. And so what we're asking you to do is to be invited into a narrative that's so compelling that every morning when you wake up, you have a reason to become more like Jesus. And no one can take that away from you. There's no life condition that can take that away from you. That until the very last breath you take, you can become more like Jesus. And then what Paul says is, hey, how good is this? In Philippians 3, he says, when you take your last breath or when the Lord comes again, you'll finally be that which you've aspired to be all of your life. What other story allows you to die for the realization of the purpose of your life? So as we talk about your identity, it feels a little strange because sometimes we're, we're so conditioned within Christianity not to talk about ourselves. But what we're trying to invite you into is that knowing 
Christ in you is going to unlock and unleash your ability to think about purpose and vocation and the kind of places where you're going to go and practice what God's given you in the, in the real world. And I think it's also a little tricky sometimes to talk about work in maybe a, a context of church because some of us, I recognize, and, and myself included, when we talk about work, we're also so conditioned to think about legalist, legalism and talk about how we can't earn our way to God. We can't be good enough, and so we, we really lean into grace and we talk about the work of Christ has accomplished the work, the things in the world, right, that we want to see. But there's this beautiful collaboration between the work of Christ and the work that we have been given. And so I want to help you feel permission for a minute, not just to go and work out of duty or obligation, but to go and work out of what God has gifted you. One of the reasons that we can't really talk about purpose and vocation first is that we have to start with identity. Who are you? Because otherwise, we're just going to turn it all right back into a legalistic form of trying to earn something or trying to make a name for ourselves or trying to climb a corporate ladder. I really like what Thurman says, and I apologize, I noticed I have a, a typo here. But Thurman says, let's be careful not to, to work in a way that just simply looks for needs in the world. And this, this is a little bit tricky because, yes, we are serving the needs of the world. We want to contribute to human flourishing. But what if we could serve not just out of our time? Sometimes we go and think, well, I need to just go and check a box. I need to go serve with my time. And we might even think about serving, taking up our towel like Jesus and washing feet. So then we, we just engage our time. Like we get our hands and feet dirty and we go and, and we serve. And we do a lot out of, a, out of an obligation. But what if we could serve out of our talent? And we could contribute to flourishing in the world out of the way that God has gifted us specifically. And so what Thurman says here, I think quite well, is maybe the question we should be asking is, what makes us come alive? Because once we know what's made us come alive in Christ, that's a desire He has placed there that we can then go and contribute to what the world needs. Because what the world needs, Thurman says, are people, believers in Christ who have come alive. Irenaeus would say it this way, the glory of God, in fact, is, is a human being living fully animated, fully alive. The spirit that breathed life into us in creation wants to play a role of breathing life in the new creation. And that flows through us and into the world in a collaborative and participatory way. And that's why Paul can say to start this letter to the Ephesian church, don't forget it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Notice again, identity, 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 but that identity reveals purpose, what we're living for. And within that, it reveals a design about us. And then that design leads us towards purpose. So these are, this is Paul's trajectory. It's identity and purpose and then vocation, what you do with your design and how you bless the lives of others. You know, I, I tell students a lot that if you trust, you can't just blindly trust your desires. So don't hear us say that. It's not like just do whatever you feel like doing. But if you are practicing what Psalm 37.4 talks about, if you are delighting in the Lord, then you can trust the desires of your heart. If you're not delighting in the Lord, don't you dare trust the desires of your heart. But when you delight in the Lord, you can trust that God's given you this, this desire for something of His kingdom that matters. And then in turn, He gives you a design. He's going to not only give you a vision for something, but a provision to go and do that thing. This is why 
People like Parker Palmer, who has spent their life studying vocation, can say this, the deepest vocational question then is not what I ought to, what I ought to do with my life or what ought I do with my life. He says it's more, the more elemental nature. When we think about vocation, we may need to start by saying, who am I? What's my nature? What has God given me to do in the world? And this is the beautiful thing that we get to do on a early, in an early stage with a student is help them to cultivate that and to discover that and think about how did God make you? Do you see how this moves quickly beyond just like, well, what do you think you could do that might make you good money in the world? Or how could you be successful in a way that's going to make a name for yourself? No, we want a student to tune in to the God at work in them that's revealing creative gifts in them so they can go and create, co-create in the world. Gordon Smith, in a really good work called Courage and Calling, he says the first command then is to know yourself. That's what God asked us to do first. This is the starting point for living with integrity and authenticity. So we have to be true to what God has given us and then go and live out of that. Or Gordon Smith says, lest we live a lie. And I I think that's a subtle form of saying it's not just a lie like we're going around and, and lying to people like telling lies, but we're living out of a lie that we're not good enough or that we can't do this or that because we're just a this or just a that. My work's not that significant or not, doesn't matter that much. We're tempted to tell ourselves. And so Paul says, we're called to speak the truth in love. Yeah, and so we pick up the text in verse 15. What Paul has been referring to, remember, in verse 14, is being thrown about here and way by the deceitful scheming of whatever the world tells you is the true story of life. But instead of that, we're supposed to, and then the word, speaking the truth in love is how most versions translate the word. But in Greek, it's, a, it's the verb form of truth. So we really don't have, we usually supply speaking because truth is usually thought about as something that you speak, but it's more comprehensive than that. What Paul is saying is rather than embracing the false narratives of the world, embrace the narrative that you are to be truth in love. And it's in that way that you grow up into the head who is Christ Jesus. So again, he comes back to emphasizing that what we need to all be about is growing into the image of Jesus. And I think it's really important for us to understand that that doesn't mean that we become a carpenter in the ancient Middle East. It means that we embrace the calling of Jesus to be the inbreaking of the kingdom by representing God's shalom in the particular way that God has created us. And so we're trying to learn how to live truth in love for the sake of the world. And the really important part that I want you to hear is verse 16, which is really the key verse to this whole text, where as Paul brings it home, he's saying, pay attention to this because from him, the whole body joined and held together by what every supporting ligament provides. What that's saying is Paul's favorite metaphor for the church is the body of Christ. And by the way, that's why I'm really thankful to be a part of the tradition of Churches of Christ. I know the language, you are my people. But I love the fact that we believe Scripture is inspired. That's, I believe it more than I ever have. Um, We could talk about some of the nuances of that, but it's God's Word. I see the transformational character of it every day that I teach. It's, and hey, I'm teaching through the story of Israel for the 110th time this fall. And I love it more than I ever have because I'm getting to know God better every time I study through it. And it does such a wonderful job setting up the coming of Jesus, 
who resolves all the tensions in the Old Testament when God is finally revealed. And so that becomes the purpose for our life, is that we can grow into this, but pay attention, all of you are needed if the church is going to be the body of Christ in the world. And this is such a compelling story. And we have stories to tell. We'll share them with you tonight. Please come back and let us tell our stories. Because we've seen the transformational character. I mean, Rob was inter- interacting with On God last night, who is now doing mission work in China, uh, in India. Uh, and th- that story there is such an amazing, amazing story of a person who came to Lipscomb with no understanding of the Christian faith, wanted nothing to do with it. And now has gone back home where he came from as a minister of the gospel. And, and the power of the Word of God and how transformational it is and seeing the excitement in our students when they recognize that they have a contributing aspect of their life. And the way the body grows is when we build up ourselves, affirming one another's needs, our belonging for one another. And be, you know, pray for us over the next couple of days because this is the, your, 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 your leadership here is wonderful. I love them all. Uh, but be, having the opportunity to say, this is what... I'm more excited about learning than I've ever been. I'm learning more. I'm reading more. I'm more excited about the story of God than I've ever been. And my students sometimes say, uh, shouldn't you sort of be getting there? At, you know, how old are you anyway, right? <laughs> um, but it's, it's this joyous pursuit of recognizing the potential of the body of Jesus when everyone is working for the purposes of new creation. So stories like On God from India or Andre from Haiti are ones in which students are starting to come alive realizing that I might have some giftedness in preaching and teaching, and both of them do, but they also realize they had gifts in business. And they said, I'm going to go and major in business and take Bible classes as well, but I'm going to go back and love and serve the world using my business skills. So on God went into business and is now moving back to India, serving through his business. Andre, a current student, is serving out of his desire to preach, but what he realized when he came to Lipscomb is that he's not only a good preacher, he's, he wants to be engaged in teaching business skills to help Haitians break out of poverty by learning to start their own businesses. And so this is practical. When we talk about these things like who am I and why am I here, these aren't just philosophical questions. I mean, these are questions that have been wrestled with, of course, for millennia. It, These are not just philosophical questions. These are deeply theological questions. These are missiological questions. But I would also say, and what I love to tell students, these are also anatomical questions, psychological, physiological, entrepreneurial, historical, genealogical, sociocultural, economical questions. These questions invite us into new realities of God's work in the world. God was the first of all of those. God was the first artist in creation. God was the first entrepreneur, and what's He doing but inviting us to collaborate and participate in a way that Monday's not a burden. Hmm. I mean, I know we joke about, you know, living for the weekend, and, you know, we want to just get, get to Friday and celebrate, and yes, there is something to celebrate about Sabbath and rest and enjoying and all of that, but we can wake up on Monday saying, good morning, Lord. What do we get to do together today? This is the spiritual act of worship that I'm going to avodah. It's a Hebrew concept that says you can't segment this all out. Avodah in Hebrew is a way of saying it's your work, it's what you do in your occupation, like your labor. Avodah is also used to describe our service, like what we do to to serve people with the towel. 
And avodah also is what we do in our worship. Look at the three ways that that's used here. Avodah, avodah, avodah. It's, it's the integration and the intersection of our work, our worship, and our service in ways that we can say, you know what, I, I can't reduce this story. I can't just get off the hook by saying, well, I'm just a whatever. I don't know why I hear this a lot with accounting students. I'm just an accountant. I'm just a librarian. I'm just a whatever. And when we say that, I know we may say that of humility, trying to say, well, I'm not really anybody. We're not saying make a name for yourself and all of that. You might, you might steward that to bless others. But what we're saying is you're not just anything. That's reducing your role in the story. You're an artisan. If you're an accountant, you're stewarding numbers to the glory of God. You are helping to maximize impact in, a, in some specific way. If you're a nurse, you're not just working for a, a, a paycheck or for a, good, for a schedule. You are showing the care of God in the hospital room. So whether it's the hospital room, the boardroom, whatever it is, we are called to participate in a way that says you're an artist and steward what God has given you. This is why John the Baptist, when he was talking about the kingdom of God at hand, not not just a faraway reality. He says, the kingdom of God is here. It's near. Repent, repent, repent. Well, he was talking about the repentance of sin, but he was also talking about the repentance that comes when we just disconnect our work. And one way we know that is it says tax collectors came out to see John the Baptist and soldiers. And you think about what we would predict John would say to tax collectors. You would think he would say, you filthy, rotten scoundrel, cheating people out of their money. How dare you? But instead, when they say, look, we buy into your message of repentance. We want to do what you're telling us to do. We want to repent. The kingdom of God is here. And remember, John's preparing the way for Jesus. They say, what do we do, John? And John doesn't say, stop being a tax collector. John says, go be a good one. And that is how you'll usher in the kingdom of God. Could it be that tomorrow when you go to work and you wake up and say, TGIM, that you're ushering in the kingdom of God? that you're announcing the kingdom of God. Yeah. My kids love Tuesdays, so we, we thank God it's Tuesday as well because it's when our garbage man comes and picks up the trash. Now, they love it partially because it's fun to look out the glass front door and to hear the screech of the brakes and watch the truck do its thing as it picks up the, the canister and dumps it. That's fun for a kid to watch. But over the years, my kids learned to appreciate, what would we do if we didn't have people in our world that did things out of their giftedness? And my kids have learned to say thank you. And so they started writing notes to our our garbage man to say thank you. So several years ago, they started saying, we want to leave something for them. And they were partially enjoyed watching as the garbage truck came by, waving to to the garbage man that hopped out of the truck. But they were really excited on this particular Tuesday to leave a note and to leave some gifts. You see some of these over the years. This most recent one, my uh, eight-year-old Marianne, she drew a picture and said, thank you for your work. And they were excited to see how the garbage man would receive some of these gifts. Well, a few years ago, they ran to the door uh, to watch the garbage man receive the gift, and they waved and drove off. And they were really excited the next week. They wanted to see, oh, I bet they'll have an extra big smile because they read our note and ate our cookies and drank our Gatorade we gave them. So sure enough, the next Tuesday rolls around, they run to the front door, they wave to the garbage man, they can't wait to see his big smile. Well, he's getting out of the truck and walking to our front door this time. And the kids are like, whoa, dad, he's coming up here. Like, what do we do? And I said, go on out there and meet him. Like, go, he's, he's, he's somebody you can go out and see because it looks like he's coming to see you. Meet him in the driveway. 
And so they start walking out and they realize he's carrying a sack. It looks like Santa Claus. It's around Christmas carrying a sack. He hops out, opens up the sack right there in the driveway, and he says, I have a gift for you all this morning. Do you know what he gave my kids on this particular morning? It was a representation of his work. He knew who he was. He knows who he is. He's not just a garbage man. In this particular moment, he was the bringer of toys, the bringer of joy. And you can say what all you might want about certain roles and professions, but he was professing something to my children that blessed their lives, and he still does. This year, trash pandas. Like, how do you think of this stuff? And he said, oh, I just go to Walmart, and I just try to figure out what's a representation of my work. And he's blessing our lives by the way that he does his work with excellence in picking up the trash and the way that he brings joy. What would be our excuse for thanking God? It's Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. Live into the role that God's given you to play with tremendous joy and with tremendous practicality to say my work matters, every bit of it. So this brings us to the next phase of worship, but we'd like to do it in a particular way that celebrates the calling that we have each been given. So when we think about whose idea was work, well, it was God's idea, not just a good idea, it was a God idea. And in the beginning, God is working, the Spirit is hovering over the waters. Think about that beautiful way Scripture opens in the narrative of the Bible Scripture opens by telling us the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. God is eagerly anticipating to create. God, the first artist, God, the first entrepreneur, can't wait to burst forth and to create and then to co-create with the first humans. But after that story falls and humanity loses their place in the garden and maybe loses their understanding of their identity, we see a Jesus also standing in water and a spirit hovering over the waters yet again as a Jesus comes to announce new creation. The same spirit that hovered over the waters in creation is now standing over the water with Jesus as the voice of God speaks to not just Jesus, but in a sense to all of us. This is my son. And he's come to show you, to, to redeem you, not just from your sin, but to show you that you can't work hard enough. You can't earn your way to salvation. No amount of work is going to get you there. He's done the work. And it's by his work that we are saved. It is his work that makes the world complete. But then Paul picks up on this metaphor in 2 Corinthians 5. And the whole way he describes who we are, he says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a, of all the words he could have said, they are a new creation. In other words, the same spirit that hovered over the, the waters in the beginning and the same spirit that hovered over Jesus and announcing newness to the world and redemption to the world hovers over us and makes us new creation. That is the good news, and that redeems everything about us. It redeems the way that we think about sin because we realize Jesus paid the price, and His work 
is why we can be here today forgiven and free. But it also changes the way we think about the work and the tasks that we're given to do in the world, to collaborate, to cooperate, to commission with him, to live on mission, even on Mondays. The good news of Jesus is that he has come to rescue us, not just from sin, but from a meaningless life. And that's what we celebrate here in this moment. As our shepherds surround you and invite you to pray, I hope that you might remember this morning who you are. That you can't work hard enough, but you do get to work. You can't earn your salvation, but you do get to participate in some form of announcing salvation to the world in your day-to-day work. And if you've forgotten that first calling to be a child of God, this morning is a reminder to come to Jesus and let Him tell you how much He loves you. You are my child. God spoke that from the heavens to Jesus. This is my son. And God says that to you today. You are my daughter. You are my son. And He loves you with a love that knows no boundaries and no limits. He loves you as you are, and He wants to make you into something beyond what you even knew possible. If in any way today you need to be reminded of your identity in Christ and the purpose that He has for your life, it's our hope and prayer that what we've said has encouraged you, but even more important, that the Spirit is speaking to you now as we stand and as we sing. Come and be reminded of who you are in the identity that Christ has given you, the new creation that he's made you. Let's stand and sing.